If you are new here today, first time, or if you've been here a few times, maybe you haven't picked one up, we have these books that we hand out for free. They're for you to take notes as we go through these yearly series. So if you don't have one, if you'll raise your hand, Seth's got a few in his hands, he'll walk around and make sure that you get one. Well, good morning and welcome back to our series for 2023, The Life of Christ. As we walk through this year, we're focusing in on the events that took place in the life of Jesus during his lifetime. But I don't want you to lose sight of the fact of this, that this is just one part of God's amazing plan for you and for me. The entire Bible is one connected story. This is especially true when we turn our attention to what is undeniably the most famous sermon ever given. And by none other than the master, not a master, but the master communicator, Jesus himself. We are, of course, talking about the Sermon on the Mount. It is where Jesus gives us the Beatitudes, eight of the most profound statements ever made, or nine or ten, depending on how you might count them. And that is only just the beginning. What Jesus has to say will completely turn the notion of the kingdom of God upside down and inside out for his audience. Now, much of the Sermon on the Mount, it seems to me, might have struck some of its hearers as a little bit funny. Among the Beatitudes which, uh, uh, which, uh, with which the sermon begins, we'll read those a little later on, I can well imagine that uh, there may have been some smiles, if, if not some out and right uh, laughter, especially at this remark. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What could sound more silly on the surface? The meek will inherit the earth? Isn't that what the strong do? That's what the strong do, don't they? I can imagine someone hollering out, Yeah, and the rich will inherit all the loopholes. And the crowd would laugh as they heard these things. In modern times, you might well wonder, Well, if the meek shall inherit the earth, and the rich will have a hard time getting into heaven, what about the middle class? Politicians love to talk about the middle class. Of course, this is humor with a purpose to overturn our usual perceptions, as only Jesus can do. So we are going to spend the next three weeks, the next three Sundays, focused on the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to try my best to set up the background and the place, and to place the sermon in context for the next two messages in the series. With that in mind, we want to remind you, if you missed the message, any message of the year, and you want to catch up, you want to listen to one again, you can always do so by going to ffcsermons.org, where you can download, listen via podcast. You can also go to www.ffcph.org, click on the Live tab, and watch a previous message on YouTube or Facebook. With that, let's pray, and we'll, we'll pick this up on the other side. Father, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you that you sent your son and that he came to radically change our lives. He came to turn upside down everything that we thought was real and true and to show us who you really are, to invite us into a relationship with you, a relationship like no other, a relationship where we can know what life is. We can live life and live it to its fullest. We thank you for that invitation into your family simply by believing who Jesus is. Father, be with us this morning as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, is, 
Jesus' most famous sermon. Some of the things you heard your parents say when you were growing up come right out of this sermon. Things like, judge not, or you will be judged. Turn the other cheek. My father would say to me, you know, you got four of those after that is on. You got four times and then you can have at it, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You're supposed to love your enemies, right? Beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. All comes straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is about to drop on the people is so countercultural that it has often been described as upside down teaching. It's as if Jesus said, I understand. There is this deep-seated longing in your heart to be significant, to accomplish something, to be loved, to achieve, and you have been trying to fill that the wrong way. And I'm here to tell you that my message is this, the way up is down and the way in is out. The way that you think life should be lived is wrong. Oh, forget think, it is wrong. And in his goodness, he says, I'm going to give you truth. I'm going to essentially give you a new way to be human. And in doing so, you will end up having the life that you have always wanted to live, the life that I created you for. That, for me, is kind of a nice summary of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a great introduction to who Jesus is and what he set out to accomplish. So let's read the text, at least of the Beatitudes, this morning from Matthew chapter 5, the first 12 verses. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's recap these blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the poor in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, pure in heart. It seems to me the exact opposite of these is true today. A.W. Tozer put them this way. He said, instead of poverty of spirit, we find the rankest kind of pride. Instead of mourners, we find pleasure seekers. Instead of meekness, arrogance. Instead of hungering after righteousness, we hear men saying, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Instead of mercy, we find cruelty. Instead of purity of heart, corrupt imaginings. Instead of peacemakers, we find men quarrelsome and resentful. Instead of rejoicing and being misunderstood, we find them fighting back with every weapon at their command. Of this kind of moral stuff, civilized society is composed. Okay, but this list that Jesus pronounced 
doesn't seem that complicated, does it? I mean, they seem simple enough. Be humble, be meek, be merciful. Not much more to say about those, Jim. I know you said earlier that they were radical teachings, an upside-down gospel. I mean, they're no more complicated than a swimming pool is complicated. Swimming pools are on my mind. I opened my swimming pool last week. Not that swimming pool. Next to that swimming pool, mine looks like one of those little inflatable things you get at Walmart. That's a nice pool. I just opened mine last week. The water in mine is a balmy 58 degrees. It's a little too chilly to get into the pool just yet. But what I mean is this. Once you get in, it's kind of intuitive, right? What happens? Well, you get wet. I mean, maybe you're in the shallow end. It's like, yeah, this is exactly what I expected. It's kind of nice. But then you take a few steps, and, and maybe you ask a few questions. What on earth does it mean to be poor in spirit? And who said meek in any conversation I had during all of last year? And, whoa, the pool is like now up to your waist. And you take a few more steps, and you're like, wait a minute. Why did Jesus pronounce a blessing on people who cry a lot, who mourn? Isn't that something we generally don't enjoy doing? And, and why is he blessing people who get beat up? I grew up learning how to avoid a fight if I could, but learning how to fight if I couldn't. Isn't that something I want to avoid in most scenarios? And then you realize that you're in your neck up to the pool. And then you're like, what does it mean to be blessed in the first place? Blessed by whom? Blessed for what purpose? Blessed for what result? And who is he even saying these things to in the first place? And, and now, and why does he begin one of his most famous teachings with these eight blessings? And then you're treading water and you realize the pool is 12 feet deep and you're in way over your head. That's my experience as I read through the Beatitudes. I hope I helped you recreate what I feel when I read through them. Notice the questions I ask myself are, are not tricky. You already know how to ask those questions. Who, what, when, where, how, and why. And so in my mind, they are way more than meets the eye. They may seem a little bit harmless or benign, eight blessings you say over people. But these blessings, I'm convinced, are actually deeply challenging. If you hear them correctly, I think they have the potential to turn your view of yourself and of God and of other people upside down. So let's walk into the deep end of the pool, shall we? And to me, the first two questions are the most helpful questions, and you don't need any special knowledge to ask and answer them. And if you keep asking those two questions of everything that you encounter, you keep asking them and answering them, every line through these blessings, it will be deeply profound. And the questions are simply these. To whom is Jesus saying these blessings? And in what setting is Jesus speaking? So who is Jesus talking to? And in what setting or context is he doing it? And asking that question might help highlight something that is very important. These chapters in Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7, are the most famous collection of Jesus' teaching. Now, many people who primarily see Jesus as a moral teacher want to lift these three chapters out of the Bible as though they are like a little pamphlet. These are the ethics of Jesus. These are Jesus' ethics light. Cliff loats on the, the moral and ethical teachings of Jesus. And if you do that, I'm convinced you'll miss what Jesus was trying to say or do in these chapters because Matthew has placed them in order. He's placed chapters 5, 6, and 7 after chapter what? 
chapter 4. And he's placed them before the rest of the book. And there is a method to that madness, having things in order. Because ethical teaching was one of the things that Jesus did, but only while trying to flesh out the implications on how we should respond to what his core message was all about. Jesus' core message we get in chapter 4 of Matthew. What was Jesus' core message? What did Jesus say was at hand? He said his kingdom was at hand. Look at Matthew 4, verse 17. Jesus comes onto the public stage, and he summarizes the whole message in one little statement. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, pay attention, turn around, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Mark says the same thing in chapter 1 of his gospel. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news, that's the gospel of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So the kingdom of God or heaven is the storyline of the entire Bible. It's all about humans have both rebelled and ruined ourselves and others and God's good world and how God has set a whole set of promises and the story of the Old Testament scriptures to lead us to the promise of a returning king and Messiah. That he would one day come again among his people as king and reclaim his rightful reign and his place over the people and earth. And Jesus claimed that's what would happen. And it was happening in himself and in what he was saying and in what he was doing. And he was utterly convinced that it was good news, really good news. And so what does Jesus do? He comes and he announces the king and the kingdom. And what's the first thing that Jesus does after that? Remember? Well, he goes on a little stroll. He takes a walk. He walks around the lake and he runs into these fishermen, these no-name fishermen. And what does he say to them? Follow me. Matthew 4, 18-19, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for men. And what did they do? They followed him. Then Jesus goes around the whole region, right? He's kind of like this itinerant teacher-preacher kind of thing, proclaiming the good news about the kingdom and healing all kinds of sick people. So by the time that we get to chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, who is following Jesus? Well, we have Peter and Andrew, and then James and John. They come a few verses later. Two other disciples. So we've got four disciples, four fishermen, four followers, and a whole lot more. Chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Who's following Jesus? Sick people. People whose bodies don't work. People in pain. People who are possessed and oppressed by demons. From all over the regions, they flock to Jesus. Verse 25 says, 
from the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region around Jerusalem. That's a massive territory. Those ten red cities, those form the Decapolis. Look at the geography that they cover. Judea is down there in the lower left-hand corner. Cell phones and social media were blowing up. Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, LinkedIn, all gone crazy. All the major networks were carrying the news about Jesus, the left and the right. Yeah, this all spread by word of mouth. And in this setting, you know, this is Roman society. We thank them because they are the, the seed bed of democracy. All kinds of good stuff came from that society. Most people had clean water, more clean water than ever before because of the Romans and aqueducts and roads. But in this setting, it was at the same time the most cutthroat society you could ever possibly imagine. There is no welfare, no food stamps, no goodwill or savers or, or thrift shops. If you were one of these people, where do you live? What part of town do you live in? You live in the slums. You are most certainly pushed to the absolute margins of society. You're poor. You're reduced to subsistence living. You're a day laborer. And these are the people that Matthew makes a point to tell us flock to Jesus. And what do these crowds do? These large crowds, they flock to Jesus from all over the place near and far. And among all these crowds, what do they do? What does it say at the very end of verse 25? It's the last sentence of chapter 4. It says, they followed him. So there are fishermen following Jesus. And then there are the crowds of sick, hurting people who in the eyes of Roman society are the losers, the unimportant, the insignificant. They are the ones flocking to Jesus. Remember, what's our question to ask? Who's Jesus talking to and in what setting? And we haven't even made it to the Sermon on the Mount yet. I hope you all brought lunch. We're going to be here a while. Now to chapter 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, and you know who makes up the crowds now, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. His disciples came to him. Now, who's that? So I think when we see that word, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you might think, oh, it's the 12. He has 12 close disciples. Now, does the close set of 12 disciples yet exist? Well, no, they don't. Not until chapter 10. We only have four of them right now. So who are the disciples and what is a disciple? Well, a disciple is simply someone who follows Jesus. Who's following Jesus? Loads of people. And primarily the makeup this crowd is what again? It's the sick. It's the hurting. It's poor people. So here's the picture. Jesus is on a mountainside with this huge crowd of people who come out of an even larger crowd. Because they see something in Jesus and his good news of the kingdom, and they are all in for Jesus. And what does he say to a huge crowd of disciples who are unimportant, insignificant, who are hurting and sick and just scraping by? He says these eight blessings. And in that setting, words like these, they're electrifying electrifying. No one is familiar with what Jesus is saying here. They are used to hearing Pharisees and rabbis prattle on, but this, this is different. What he's saying is different. They are hearing this good news of the kingdom for the first time. And what he is saying is positively electrifying. And I think it's really hard for us to recreate what that would have 
felt like, what that would have been like to hear Jesus in the midst of all of these crowds and to hear him saying something like these words. But I'd like to try. I'd like to try to recreate it if I can. I ran across the work of these two British artists, Tim Noble and Sue Webster. They're sculpture artists who do big installations and so on. I never heard of them until I began working on this same series for our small group a few years ago. Anyone familiar with them? Heard of Tim Noble and Sue Webster? Well, good. No one. About 15 years or so ago, they did a whole series of works and things. I'll show you one. So you walk into a gallery show, and you walk into a room that is dark, and all you see is a table, an old abused picnic table. With all of these beer cans and Coke cans and Pepsi cans, and it's kind of weird, you know? And you immediately think to yourself, oh, this is one of those kind of shows. Artsy-fartsy, where nothing makes sense and no one's going to explain anything to you. Where they think that junk is art, right? If junk is art, I'm sitting on a gold mine in my house, right? It's dark and offensive. No one's going to tell you what any of it means. And then you get closer and you see that the whole thing is shot through with BBs. And as you're staring at this pile of trash in the corner of the room, a spotlight comes on. And it shines on the table and you see the silhouette it makes on the wall behind it. And that's cool. It's New York City. Trade towers and all. So what just happened here? There's a moment of a surprise when you see what's going on in this piece. It's all about perception. What you perceived was trash becomes the vehicle of meaning and of significance and beauty. The moment there is this surprise light that reframes everything you thought was there in the first place to reveal so much more. You walk into the next gallery room and you see literally a heap of trash all over the ground. And the same kind of thing happens. In the corner of the room, a light comes on, and it's people. It's actually people who look like they're sleeping in the trash. And then you realize the silhouette is made of trash. And then you read the title of the piece, Wasted Youth 2000. And then you think of Baltimore City and the number of people who are homeless and live on the streets, and it gets you thinking about perception and about how you see people who don't have homes, who live in the open in our cities, how you perceive them and think of them. It makes you rethink things. It's like the coolest thing, and I wanted to show it to you. Here's one more. This one's a bright room, but you still get that silhouette when the light comes on. Look at the detail from trash. How clear a picture that is of a person standing there. I don't know what they were going for exactly, but its effect on me is that these works are all about surprise, and this reveals a change of perception for me. What you thought were things that were discarded. What you thought was chaos and trash and garbage. From a certain angle, when the light, the right light, the surprise light shines on it, the light that only Jesus brings in our lives, the trash, that's you and me, become the vehicle of beauty and of meaning and of significance. Not because of anything we did, but because Jesus comes to tell us that the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. And the same surprise you felt when the light came on is an inkling of what Jesus is accomplishing with these words. He's talking to the sick, the hurting, day laborers, subsistence living. They're not important. Nobody cares what they think about the future of Judea or the Roman Empire. 
That's who's flocking to Jesus by the crowds. And to them, he pronounces these blessings, and they're charged, and they're changed. Because the things he's promising them are things like the kingdom of God and inheriting the earth. They will be the ones who will be able to see and meet God in a personal and intimate way. They are the ones who will be called God's family, God's children. And it's just a complete reversal of perception and an awesome surprise. From our perspective, it almost seems reckless for God to care so much. But this was his plan all along. Romans 5, Paul tells us, When we were utterly helpless, with no way of escape, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners who had no use for him. Even if we were good, we really didn't, uh, wouldn't expect anyone to die for us. Though, of course, that might be barely possible. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. The people listening to these words would have been equally surprised. Why, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. I said earlier that the crowds were used to hearing rabbis and Pharisees prattle on. But this, this is different. What Jesus is doing is different. And this is where knowing a bit of Jewish history and background, I think, illuminates things. Because Jesus is not the first teacher to teach like this, to pronounce blessings on people. He's taking a pre-existing idea and a pre-existing way of talking and a way of teaching, and he's running with it. To go around as a rabbi or a teacher pronouncing blessings on people has a long, long prehistory in Jewish culture that precedes Jesus. If you've ever watched a fiddler on the roof, right? You know, a blessing on your head, mazel tov, mazel tov, to see our daughter wed, mazel tov, mazel It's a great movie. If you're into musicals, even if you're not, it's well worth a watch. Actually, forget cultural tradition. It's rooted in the Bible itself. This is Jewish uh, scriptures, the whole Old Testament, the last book being written about 400 to 516 years before Christ. One of the greatest and longest psalms, Psalm 119, starts with blessings. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. So we have this depiction here when we say that someone's blessed. You're holding up this example, this model of something that you want to attain to, you want to reach. Here's something in the Jewish community we hold is admirable. They're blessed. They're blessed by God. Things tend to go well for you. You're wise. You seem to be able to navigate difficult decisions. You're informed by God's presence in the Scriptures. You're blessed. God likes you. He is your buddy. He's with you and you are with Him. And here's what's interesting. After the completion of the writing and the collection of the Bible, this way of teaching continues in Judaism. The way of talking about people whom God favors. Blessed because of. This becomes a very common way of teaching and talking in Jewish communities. For instance, in the community of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the community that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls was this very, very sort of eccentric, unique, unique group of Jewish people. They were so convinced that the whole rest of Judaism was going to hell in a handbasket that they withdrew to the desert and took their Bibles with them and prayed that everyone else would just pass away except for them. You can go online and read the literature that they wrote. One of their famous teachers from 150 years before Jesus was also named Jesus. Jesus ben Sirah, Jesus the son of Sirah. And he wrote a collection of teachings and reflections called the Wisdom of ben Sirah. 
You can read it today. And one of its most famous poems is a collection of blessings. So here's Jesus, Jesus Bansira, pronouncing blessings a hundred years before Jesus Christ pronounces his eight to nine blessings. Let's take a look. This is what he wrote. I can think of none who I would call blessed, and a tenth my tongue proclaims. Blessed is the man who can rejoice in his children. Blessed is the man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Blessed is the man who lives with a sensible wife and one who does not plow with ox and ass together. Blessed is the one who does not sin with his tongue. Blessed is the one who is not served and inferior. Blessed is the one who finds a friend. Blessed is the one who speaks to attentive listeners. Greatest is the one who finds wisdom. None is superior to the one who fears the Lord. Now, as you read through this list, there's a whole lot here, and you go, oh, yeah, that kind of sounds kind of sounds like the Bible. You don't sin with your tongue. You find wisdom and that kind of thing. But do you see the other things that are going on in these blessings? If you're holding up this ideal, and we're saying these are the things that God favors, the ones God favors, these are the ones with whom God really is, then look at number seven. Blessed is the one who is so important so that when they speak, people want to listen to them. That's interesting. So you know you're blessed by God, and God is with you. If people think you are so important that when you speak, they stop everything they're doing to listen to you. There was a whole ad campaign back in probably the 80s, I think, all about this. Anybody remember who that was? E.F. Hutton, right? When E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen, and everyone would stop and stand still and freeze to hear what E.F. Hutton had to say. So you should, too. Go up a couple to number five. Blessed is the one who doesn't serve an inferior. Now, you don't need to know much about Roman culture to know that it's very cutthroat. It's all about honor and shame and where you are in the social hierarchy. So you are blessed if you know that you never have to humble yourself and actually serve someone who is of a lower social status than you. This is why Jesus, when he washed the disciples' feet, was such a spectacular event, a servant leader. That's how you know God is with you. Well, that's interesting. That doesn't sound like something Jesus Christ would say at all, does it? That seems to me like the kind of thing that Jesus came and wanted to destroy. But here's a Jewish respected teacher. Here you go. Blessed is the man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. This is an individual whose career and success mean that no one can stand up to this person, and everyone who comes against him is undermined or defeated in some way. So how do you know God is with you? Because you win. You win at everything you do. Everything is about status. Am I admired? It's all about where you are and and that's how you know you're blessed if you're above everyone else. You never step down below the person uh, to, uh, who is beneath you. It's about them trying to get up the ladder to where you are. And this is the world that Jesus, Jesus Christ, comes to. This is the cultural reality for our poor fishermen and the sick, hurting, and uh, insignificant people who flock to Jesus when he announces the good news of the kingdom. This is what fills their mind. And the first thing he says to them is eight blessings. Worship team, you can make your way back up. Put yourself in their shoes or their sandals, if you will. I don't know if they had a lot of shoes, but they certainly wore sandals. You hear the first blessed, and you're like, blessed? Oh, brilliant. 
Of course, Jesus, you're just another Jewish teacher who's going to talk about the healthy, wealthy, and wise and how God is with them. And maybe, just maybe, you'll help us get there. Is that what Jesus said? No, not at all. It's exactly opposite of what Jesus tries to do. What he does is actually affirm everything about these people in full recognition. The poor, the mourning, the meek, the unimportant. People who long to see righteousness done in the world, but don't have any position or ability to do anything about it. And Jesus says the kingdom is first being offered to you. You are the fortunate ones. It's like the room with the heap of trash when the light shines on it. Jesus of Nazareth says, the kingdom of God is here. And it entails a whole reversal of how you see yourself, how you identify your status, your value. And it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant what he has to say. Too often we want to turn these blessings into ideals or virtues that we must strive to obtain. Poor in spirit, mourning, meek, hungry, thirsty, merciful, poor in heart, and so on. When we do that, we turn them into a formula, I think, that helps us gain status with God in our own mind. But that's precisely opposite of what Jesus was trying to say. It's one of these ironies of how badly we can read the Bible. Rather, they are a description of the kinds of people to whom Jesus, in fact, brought the kingdom of God. He simply announces the great surprise that these people who are not significant or honored in their society are precisely the ones who have received the honor to be the first among those invited, called into God's kingdom. Are you with me? Do you see what Jesus is doing here? If you do, how can you not love this man? Why would he care for me? Why would he care for them? Why would he care for you? From my perspective, it just seems reckless. But this was God's plan all along. You think you've been on the outside of what's really going on. And you want to know a God like no other God who works on your behalf. It's Jesus. And he invites you today into his kingdom by simply accepting who he is, believing who he is, saying, Lord, I know I've messed up. I've sinned. I need your forgiveness. I believe that you died for me, that you rose again. And because of that resurrection, I can have newness of life. I want to enter into your kingdom. I want to know what it means to have kingdom life, to be filled, and to have life to the fullest. Faith Fellowship, pray that prayer if you haven't already. And God will be with you. Faith Fellowship, know that God is with you and not against you. Have a good day in Jesus. We're going to end with a song.